0: Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire
1: Ladies and gentlemen, friends, patrons, fellow mythical astronomers Welcome to the Cooking Up Ice Dragons live stream How's everybody doing today? I myself had a Nice big home cooked breakfast Eggs and bacon Lots of sharp cheddar cheese, bell peppers That kind of thing That's how I like to do my Saturday How are y'all doing? What did everyone eat for breakfast? Better question What did y'all think of the last episode? Even better question How do I sound? How's the audio? Hey Zach Hey Matt Stoyles Stephen Stark Brand the Builder, so many friends. All right, sounding good. Thanks, everybody. Okay, so let's start off. Hey, Jancy, thanks for showing up and signing up for Patreon, by the way. Let's start off by asking you guys, uh, take the questions in the chat. I've got a bunch ready. There was a lot of good questions sent in from across the land, but you guys are here live. Hey, Lady Shar. So uh, if you've got any questions, go ahead and fire away right at the beginning. Eggs and peppers. Yeah, it was a little Dornish. I definitely am liberal with the pepper, although there was no, uh, no, no, uh, snake venom or, uh, you know, nothing really, truly hot, but. Hey, Scott. Hey, Indiana the wise. I got one of your questions from uh, last month. Oh, by the way, um, hey, Searing Abyss if you sent in any questions uh last month for the Q&A, I was not very good about answering them i uh, had poor quentin on and i pretty much just picked his brain about euron and stuff and i think that came out really well but uh if you sent something in it didn't get answered uh, i might get to it today i grabbed a bunch of those hey from sweden yeah we were just uh, i was talk just talking to blue tiger today about where everybody listens from and everybody comes from and uh It's really awesome how international the fandom is. So hello to everybody in Europe or anywhere else where you're staying up late. Sweden, Austria. Very nice. Hey, Christoph. All right. So I'm going to start off with I'm not seeing any questions right away. Oh, Tunisia, Toronto. So if you guys, like I said, if you guys have any questions, go ahead and throw them at me. But I'm going to start off with one kind of meta question that I got from Theory Fletch. And he says, hey, LML, another great episode. Thanks. You're welcome. I was thinking it through. I would have been, uh, it would have been so much cooler if I had figured out this stuff on my own, not saying that I could have. I have a suggestion for a future episode. Give us the evidence and a hint or two about what to pay attention to, but none of the conclusions slash analysis, and then give us a week or two to puzzle it out as well as we can. Then the next week do a follow-up episode where you show us your thought process about the conclusions. Not sure how it would turn out, but I think it would be a fun let me scroll up real quick here. Oh, how's this work? There we go. I think it would be a fun and interactive way to enjoy your content. Might also be interesting to hear some of the different conclusions people came to as well. So I thought that was a pretty cool suggestion. I'd like to ask Monica, you're not late at all, we're just starting. How's it going? episodic hey, sunbreaker. But uh, so this question is an interesting question. I think about format a lot. And so what this uh what theory fletch is is suggesting is like hey, instead of you know, let us have some of the fun of of ex- of making these discoveries, you know, maybe throw us a few hints or a few bones and then you know, let us run with it. I I do try to do that a little bit. Um in the sense that frequently in my episodes Uh, I'll give like a sort of reference to what we'll be studying in the future. And so I'll mention something and be like, like for example, it was in episode two of moons of ice and fire that I started talking about a dragon locked in ice and the idea that the uh, ice moon meteor, you know, one of the meteors from the fire moon rather might've gotten stuck in the ice moon. I talked about, I've thrown out the, like I haven't gone to uh, the eerie to talk about Sansa yet, but I've told you that Sansa is a fire moon person That essentially when she gets stuck in the eerie, that's like a piece of fire moon getting trapped in the ice moon. So if you wanted to, you could, uh, Searing Abyss says, I need it spelled out to me. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, some people do, um, some people don't, but there's a good point here. And the point is, I do have a lot of fun exploring all this. And, you know, some of you guys are on Twitter, uh, you know, chatting with me as we're sort of developing ideas, you know, with uh, people like... Uh Ravenous Reader and Blue Tiger and Unchained and Isabel Harper, who's I've found out goes by Sarah on Twitter. In any case, it's fun to make these discoveries, and I do try to give you guys a little bit of a lead so that you can sort of guess out ahead of time. And also I don't always give you all of the examples of a given scenario. Like I haven't given you all the Knights Queens. For example, Shay turns out to be a great Knights Queen. And I didn't really say anything about Shay. I had a couple clues about her, but um, I just hadn't gotten into Tyrion and Shay lately. And so somebody picked up on the clues about Shay, And on Twitter the last couple days, we've all just been brainstorming and tracing out her whole stuff. And we found a bunch of matches for Tyrion as a Night's King character. Uh, and so, you know, you just don't ever assume that I'm giving you the whole story because I'm not. Like, there's there's way too many examples for me to try to do include in one essay or else it'd be three hours long. I've, I've tried to do that before, but they just end up too long. So I usually try to limit to like three solid examples of, of a given pattern, but I am. So I've given this some thought and I actually ended up doing something like this. Uh, I recorded a podcast with Quinn from ideas of ice and fire two days ago. And I hope that all of you guys have checked him out by now. I've been on his podcast, uh, you know, several times he does live streams on YouTube a lot. And he also does great stuff about Dune and, of course, The Song of Ice and Fire. He's got that really low, creepy reading voice that I love to talk about, like a shy and Lovecraftian things. In any case, we recorded a podcast about the others. And about, actually, not about the others. It was about all the sort of humanoid uh, people, humanoid creatures that aren't humans that are in a song of ice and fire such as the children of the forest the giants the others and the, like lizard men and winged men and brindled men and the old ones and the deep ones we talked about the deep ones a lot and so what i'm getting to is that i actually um, whipped out the beginning of a new theory that i've been working on about the old ones and the green men on his podcast and it's only the first half and so if you listen to that There's going to be some clues that you can take and run with further. So Theory Fletch, if you're listening, and anybody else that wants to kind of have some of this joy of discovery, make sure you listen to the Ideas of Ice and Fire collaboration that I believe will be coming out next week on his channel. And I'll be sure to tweet it out and link to it. And um, you'll get a brand new theory that's pretty damn exciting. I'm, I'm pretty pumped about it. But I've only, I've only just sort of walked you up to the doorstep of it. So if you want to, I'll leave you with a lot of clues to run with and explore. That's the point. Kevin Meeker hit me up with a super chat. Thanks there, buddy. If you've got a question, feel free to fire it at me and I will get it away. And so in case you didn't know, um, YouTube's got this cool thing called super chat. If you like what I'm doing and want to keep me fired up and excited or throw me a few bucks, you can hit the little dollar sign by the comment thing and send me some money, and it's just what it looks like. And if you have a question, of course, you can attach it to the you know, dollar bill and send it forward, and you'll get a quick answer. So let me just scroll through the chat real quick and see if I got any questions that I missed. Are Cranog men considered humanoid or regular humans? Well, we did talk about them, Viserys Sunbreaker, um, because they would seem to have you know, some children of the forest influence. But they're they're basically considered humans, but obviously they're a little short and uh, they manifest green sight sometimes. And let's see here. Okay. If you've come here to debate RLJ, you'll probably be disappointed. Just say that real quick. Uh, let's see here. Hey, Cecilia Cogsworth. Hello from Madrid. Thanks for coming. Can the long night be a nuclear winter? Well, of course, if you've read any of my stuff, you'll know that I think it's a volcanic, not a volcanic, but an impact winter, which essentially works the same way as a nuclear winter. So, for all intents and purposes, you know, the the cause of it is different, but the effects are very similar. Uh, I guess the nuclear winter has a radiation fallout that an impact winter would not, except for that the meteors in this world are magic, and if you look at a shy or Valeria, it seems that when a large magical explosion goes off, Uh, there can be a little bit of uh, radiation effect, too. So I think that the magical version of a meteor impact in A Song of Ice and Fire is very, very equivalent to a nuclear winter. You get all of the stuff, fallout, clouding the sky, et cetera, et cetera. But, of course, I do not subscribe to the A Song of Ice and Fire secretly science fiction theory, Uh, although I do like Preston's work, and I don't have anything bad to say about him other than I disagree about the science fiction thing. Anyways, uh, let's see here. Melisandra thinks the heaviest blow of the others will come to the Three Towers near Old Town. Thoughts on that? Well, so she sees a tower by the sea uh, getting inundated with the black and bloody tide, which is obviously a scene I've made a lot of hay of symbolically. Um, but the question is, what real tower is that? They think it's Eastwatch. Mel thinks it's Eastwatch. Perhaps. She's not sure. Um, so I think Old Town is definitely... Yeah, that was a metaphor for Euron. It definitely could be. Euron's got all the black uh, waves of blood and night symbolism, as I talked about two episodes ago. So I definitely think that could be foreshadowing for Euron attacking Old Town. I think Euron's going to attack Old Town anyways, because I think the original Bloodstone Emperor attacked Old Town, and that's why you get people like Samwell, Starfire, Dane attacking Old Town in history. Uh, I mentioned they, uh, the Sand Snakes wanted to turn Old Town into Oberon's funeral pyre, which kind of the same symbolism john snow crow in the snow he sure is that is zach you know because i don't want to describe john exclusively in dragon language since he's mostly of the north anyways let's see hey james thanks for dropping in thanks kevin yes uh no, it's cool. If, dude, if you ask me a question I've answered in a podcast somewhere, that's totally cool. I mean, I've made a lot of podcasts. I don't remember everything I've said. It's okay to ask another question. So, I'm again, I'm just quickly scrolling back. Oh, Monica asked me, what, do, what is my take of Rose of Red Lake? So I'm actually probably going to save that answer, Monica, for the Zodiac episode that I'm going to do because obviously... Um, is it Brandon of the Bloody Blade? Yeah, it kills all those giants and skin changers and turns Red Lake blue. And Rose of Red Lake is another one of the sons, uh, children of Garth the Green, not sons, obviously, daughter. So, yeah, I'll probably save that take. But it's obviously, you know, it has to do with skin changing being part of the Garth the Green legend, which I subscribe to. And, yeah, I just I say it every, every week now or every month. But, yeah, if you're not on Twitter... You gotta get on Twitter. The Song of Ice and Fire fandom is really strong on Twitter. Lots of fun. It's pretty much the best use of social media for our fandom, I would say. Alright, let's see. What do we got? What do we got? Will Jon Snow be hot hands? Yeah, I I that would be cool. I'd like to see that. But he, all his symbolism is like frozen fire, so he might be like cold hands. I I'm pretty sold on the white hair thing. Be cool if he looks straight up weirwood, like red eyes and white hair, like a walking blood raven, if you will. Um, So I'm rooting for that. My my, see, my cowboy fiance, my cowboy's fiance says, "Does Danny's dream of fighting the others in the Riverlands mean the others will be making all the way down to the Riverlands, or only symbolically showing they will be her biggest battle?" Well, um, I think the so many of the major battles in this story occur. In a river, and I think that's symbolic of like the river of time and the weirwood nets and all that stuff. Um, and obviously, that's a pretty symbolic thing. But I could see the others getting as far as the Riverlands or King's Landing. I could definitely see that. I mean, George has to fill up that battle. You know, it's not just going to be one battle. You know, um, you know how George likes to write. He doesn't like to write literal like the high action of the battle. He likes to deal with like the periphery of it. And the setup up to it in the aftermath. So we'll have to see. We'll have to see. There's no disliking Jon Snow allowed here. Sorry. I apologize. But no, I'm just kidding. Uh, chicken Lipstick showing up late to the stream. Out marching. That is awesome. You're totally excused. I realized uh, only yesterday was a bit of poor scheduling on my part. But let's see. Stephen Stark hits me up with a super chat question. Do you think there is an ending for this story that will validate my theories in a direct way, i.e. Second Meteor, Twelve Companions, etc.? So this is a great question, and it's probably one of the best questions or criticisms criticisms that I encounter. It's reasonable. So I definitely think there's a lot of stuff that George Martin is not going to give you super solid answers to. Um, a lot of the mysteries, and that's like not just my stuff, but any given mystery... Uh, I think in literature, it's kind of how it works. You, you're you not supposed to expect a solid answer. You're supposed to figure it out. And there's supposed to be debate. You know, a great work of art, people talk about it and they debate about it for a long time after it exists. So I think that's definitely part of the case. However, um, logic dictates that if a meteor attack caused the first long night, uh, that a meteor attack might cause the new long night. And I definitely think I've found... Uh, foreshadowing. So if there's a meteor event in the next two books that causes a new long night, I would say that would probably validate uh, my theories pretty well. Um, it's I, if, uh, if we don't get a new meteor attack, I don't know that that necessarily disproves my theories, but I'm definitely going to be scratching my head and looking over things and seeing what actually happened and reconsidering things. So it's hard to react to that until I see. And then, yeah, the other thing that we could see is some sort of long night's watch, you know. I don't know if we'll get twelve zombies. It might be a lot to ask, but um, it'll be, you know. What will they do with John? Will John use his advantages of of not having to eat or sleep? That's we don't even know if John will be like Cold Hands. Like maybe he'll get resurrected all the way to where he can eat and sleep, so he can actually, you know, reproduce and procreate. Maybe that's important, uh, or maybe he'll be, you know, like a Cold Hands style zombie. So. That would be a good validation. Um, I also... God, there was one more. I was thinking about this just the other day. Something that I've predicted that I would like to see. Um, I'd like to see Oathkeeper end up as being like the most important new Lightbringer sword. That would be cool, just because it's the original ice. Uh, Let's see. Peg Leg Pete hit me up with a super chat. Have you mapped out all uh, of the places Brand the Builder built to see if they form a symbol or sign? No, I haven't, Peg Leg Pete, and I, it's not really something I get into as far as like looking for those kind of shapes. Although I will say that Joe Magician, you know how Westeros has a bunch of names that sound like body parts. It's got the God's eye, the arm of Dorne, uh it's got the neck and the fingers. And so uh Joe Magician, and I'll I'll try to share this picture on Twitter, but Joe Magician made like a, a lumpy picture of a person. And it's kind of like a person with like his his arm over his head like this. And then, like, he interpreted the neck as, like, somebody else's... The finger sort of choking the neck. But it's actually upside down. So it kind of evokes an Odin-like hung upside down from the tree sort of thing. But I've got no idea if that's intentional. So I don't know. I don't usually get into map tinfoil. But there is one thing that I like um, that I almost included. Uh, it was in my very oldest stuff. So if you look at the Bones Mountains... And I'm looking up at my world map right now. The Bones Mountains... Our vertical mountain range that cuts all the way across Essos and they have it's really weird the symbolism of it it's got three cities and it's got three distinct regions and they essentially it it almost seems like a sword and the names of the places imply glass, and frozen steel and iron and a few other things and uh So I almost went there, but it just seemed a little too tinfoily for me. So I kind of tend to focus on the most solid sort of stuff, you know, for the podcast. So let's see. I think I missed a couple of good questions here. By the way, if you can, if you got a direct question for me and you can uh, put at, you know, Lucifer Means Lightbringer, then that'll tag me on the chat and I'll see it a little easier. What's my favorite beer? Um, I tend to like really light and crisp beer. Uh, just like a really good pilsner or a good lager, and I always try to drink stuff on draft. live in the Bay Area, so everywhere it's got like, local stuff on tap, so you just sample whatever kind of local beer is happening. I just I don't drink IPAs. I must be the only guy that doesn't. Uh, my dad drinks all the dark beer, so like we're the yin and yang of beer drinking, I guess. Uh, my last name, in case you didn't know, is actually Beers, so it's kind of a relevant question for me. Let's see, LML, I was rewatching the House Dane series and I was wondering if there's any way for Darkstar to contribute in a positive way. I mean, Darkstar can have a redemption arc. I don't know, that'd be a tough one. I think his most useful thing will be to just take Dawn and go somewhere and then die so someone else can take Dawn, but yeah, I don't know. Can the Horn of Jorman cause the second meteor attack? Okay, so that is a great question. And, uh, somebody, there was actually a question, uh, in the ones that were sent in ahead of time about that. So I'm going to come back to that. Uh, that's a great question though. So, okay. Sorry if this is off talk, but if you were to meet George and ask him one question, what would it be? That is an awesome question. I've thought about this a little bit. That's searing abyss. Um, boy, it's tough because he won't answer any of the questions that I really want to ask him directly. I might ask him something along the lines of you know would you make a general comment on the interaction of you know astronomy and mythology, or I might ask him uh, you know let me come back to that i i had i I thought of something pretty clever or cagey to ask him, but you know, I, I I really can't ask him any of the good questions that I wanna ask him so and to be honest, I'm not one of those that pours over uh interviews of George and uh SSMs, so spake martins. I tend to think like all the information we need's in the books. So that's mostly what I focus on. Do you think that Jon Snow could ignite Longclaw with his own blood after he is resurrected? Yes, I would have to think so. Um and this is one of the things I was actually hoping the show would do because you've got Beric lighting his damn sword on fire over and over with his magical blood and he's sitting there talking to John like, the Lord of Light only brought me and you back. Definitely not Lady Stoneheart, just me and you. Watch me do this thing with the sword. Just saying. So hopefully John will figure that out in the show. And I think that works for the books too because it's the same mechanics. Cold hands was Azor High. Brand the builder says, that would make a fire and ice parallel if John became hot hands, like I said. Yeah, totally. Um Cold Hands could absolutely be a Zora high. I threw that idea out in the Green Zombies podcast because cold hands is a you could sort of interpret what he's doing as almost like a penance or a punishment. He's you know, he could be hundreds of years old, and his he's doomed to just like wander the frozen lands forever and ever, waiting for Brand to show up to help him or whatever, so that kind of sucks. Maybe that's his Penance for causing the Long Night if indeed He had a redemption arc I kind of like the idea that he's one of the last Heroes 12 just like a Random one of those 12 that Survived and stuck around Is Stannis important To the story yeah I think so I mean every Character is important to the story Even if they don't end up at the last battle um, Stannis has obviously Moved a lot of things forward He's a great character He's a very unique character and He's an important Azor high parallel uh, and he's also a stag man, so yeah, I'm I'm a fan of Stannis. What will be his next move and story arc? So, I tend to think he probably won't live past the Battle of Winter or the Battle of Ice. He might either die during the battle or, perhaps, soon after. But seems like that's pretty much the end of his arc. Um, I think the Battle of Ice is just going to be way cooler in the books, so I'm kind of looking forward to see what that happens. Steven Stark, do I have a favorite POV? That's a good question. Um let's see. I uh oh yeah so I'll answer that but real quick Brand the Builder did just write a cool blog entry about hot hands. That he did. Um so yeah drop a link to your essay about hot hands because I thought that was cool. So my favorite POV probably um, I think more in terms of chapters, but I really like Asha Greyjoy, man. I just love, I love the democracy speech at the King's Moot. I love her sort of, uh, just her general attitude. I think her and Carl's love scene is like might be the best love scene in the whole story, and you know, with all due respect to the Fat Pink Mast. And I mean, just what's not to like about Asha? Plus, the Wayward Bride chapter is my favorite. I mean, it's like my top three. I don't know if it's my favorite favorite, but it's right up there. The symbolism in the Wayward Bride is the best. Trees turning into warriors and the moon drowning and the the drowned wheat. And oh, man, it's just great. So yeah, really like that. Um, I love John. I'm a big John fan. I think his story is interesting and only going to get more interesting. And obviously, when a brand chapter comes up, that's probably the most exciting. Um, I don't know if that's me liking brand so much as brand being like the access to, you know, just the absolute. Now, I'm not dissing the Pink Mask. I'm just saying Carl and Asha are, uh, you know, oh, don't be hating on John, man. Don't be hating. Don't do it. Not a good look. John's cool, dude. You're going to see. Anyways, you can feel how you want to, of course. Um, I like Davos a lot. I've always liked Davos. Uh, I think I actually like Sansa's POVs. And I say actually because just Sansa gets so much hate. But I think she's a good character. And I think her stuff in the Eerie is only going to get more interesting. So, I mean, I, I like George's work. I like almost all of his POVs. And, of course, I read the books a little differently because even a chapter that's kind of slow... Might be kind of on fire for me as far as the symbolism goes. So, all right, let me let me get a couple more um, that I've that have come in ahead of time. You guys are not going to believe how hard this question is. And this is uh this is Eris from YouTube. She sent this in like a month and a half ago, and I told her I was going to answer it uh, on the last live stream. And then I think I got a little starstruck with poor Quentin on there, big sexy man that he is, and. uh just forgot to, forgot to answer it, so. Hi, LML. It's a lot of interesting symbolism. Not just this last essay, but all of it. I don't want to criticize your work. I really admire it. But, well, I wonder how all that moon, sun, eclipse, comet thing could possibly work, apart from symbolism. And somehow I hope you're wrong about it, and that Martin didn't really intend all this stuff. I mean, a small moon farther away wouldn't really cause a very impressive eclipse in a way, would it? And if the comet destroys the fire moon during the eclipse, it's only an eclipse in a certain area in that specific moment. While it's a god's eye in Westeros, for example, people in Karth wouldn't even see the moon. For most people on planetos, it would have been a totally normal day, at least until the comet hits the moon. And uh, so let me just break here. She's Actually, the main question is coming up. But just real quick, uh, early on in my essays, I talked about... Hey, Tim, what's up? I talked about... uh, you know, maybe the second moon was smaller. It was like the elf moon, and, you know, that's why the eclipse would look, you know, more like an eye with, like, a bigger rim around the sun than you usually get. But I've been uh, informed that, of course, if the moon wasn't big enough to really cover the entire disk, it wouldn't make an eclipse. It's just going to make the sun look a little bit weird. Like, a partial eclipse is still mostly bright. So I kind of dropped that idea, and also it's a little more technical than... I think we're supposed to think about this, and I've feel like I've gotten sort of more clear about that as I've gone on. So I don't talk as much about some of the like detailed mechanics that I mentioned in my first essays because I really don't think that's really we're not supposed to think about it that deep, you know. I mean, this is a myth about meteor attacks that happened eight thousand years ago. So I mean, because to be honest, there's a lot of scientific problems, like a comet wouldn't break apart a moon, it would just hit it, and, you know, you might get a few meteors, but the comet would have to be basically the size of the moon to blow up the moon, or damn near like two-thirds of it, and if that kind of event happened, it would probably wipe out all life on Earth, unless unless the moon was very small and very far away, in which case it wouldn't cause an eclipse, so you can go round and round trying to figure out, like, you know, how it technically works, but I just don't think that's how we're supposed to think about it, so... I mean, it's possible the second moon is actually like a rogue planet, that's, which is actually some comets are like small rogue moons and stuff that wander away. If you notice in the Thundar intro, uh, what looks like the red comet is actually, they call it a runaway planet, um, like sort of a loose planet wandering through dark space, which those exist. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's I just really don't think it's important. I follow the symbolism and then sort of... It's close enough to say, you know, meteor attack, because the main thing is that meteors can cause a long night. And that's kind of what we know, is we know there was a long night. And so there's only like, you got a nuclear winter, you got volcanic winter, and you got an impact winter. And beyond that, it's just got to be like magic gobbledygook, like the sun, the others just like pointed at the sun and turned it dark, and that's that. Apart from something completely nonsensical like that, it's got to be one of those three. And... Uh, you know, we've got myths about meteor attacks all over the place. So that's, you know, that's the core of my theory. So let's go on with this question here. She says, I don't know if there is a comet big enough to destroy a whole moon in Martin's imagination, but let's say there is. How could a wizard, a green seer, Azor high, use it to destroy that fire moon? It's a very big comet. It's pretty far away, and it's probably no part of the Weirwood net. If he's powerful enough to do that, he could as well make the moon explode without the comet. I just want to say messing around with a freakish big comet should be beyond human magic. If one can make that happen, he could do any crazy thing. Why would Azor Ahai do it? To become more powerful, that guy can already make comets go wherever he wants. It seems rather senseless to me. Step one, make comet hit moon cause great disaster. Step two, question mark. Step three, profits. You know I like the underpants gnomes shout out there. So. If it was for the fire of the gods, then Martin's use of that term is quite unusual. Prometheus or Adam and Eve got the divine fire. They paid for it. They got it. Azor High was godlike to begin with if he really killed another god, you know, the moon. Uh, what did he get? A long night, a few meteors, and white walkers? If he wanted to usurp the great empire of the dawn, I'd say he failed. And I don't know how he ever hoped to succeed with comets and moons and sacrificing cat women, stag stagmen. Besides, why would the eclipse be of any importance at all? I don't say you're wrong about it. There's pretty much evidence for it. I simply don't understand why Martin thought it was a good idea. So good question, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty good stuff. So let's go through that. What I think is happening is that, um, to a certain extent, some of these myths are local. We've got all these myths about heroes and at this point, we've got Azor Ahai as like, you know, he's a dragon person, he's a stag man, he goes into the weirwood net, he's a lot of things. He's also the Grey King, he might also be, you know, I haven't even talked about who's Hor Amai of the Sarnor, or Huger Hill, who has the father pull down stars to make his crown, which sounds very, you know, similar to the idea of pulling down meteors and having divine kingship by way of you know, meteors and gods and stuff. So I have to think that what Martin is mostly interested in doing is he's, te- he's telling folk tales. He's making his own mythology. And so I don't know how many of these things are literal and how much of them are figurative and how much liberty he's taking with describing, uh, you know, a, you know the, the Grey King myth is stylized towards the Iron Islands, the Azor High myth fits, you know, a shy and dragon culture. So I don't necessarily think that every single one of these is literally true. Um, it could well be also that, just like we have in the modern story, there's many characters, uh, and there's, you know, even just if you look at John and Danny as the two Azor High people. It's more than one person going to be Azor high And hopefully we'll have lots of people with flaming swords if you're really going to take on the others. And all these people are doing all these different deeds that we remembered in legend and kind of mixed up. So, you know, we're that's why I always say Azor high people and not just one person, because we shouldn't assume it was one person just because it seems to be this one archetype moving through these phases. That's why I always talk about you know, the rebirth of Azor Ahai could very easily be the child or just the descendant of Azor Ahai who manifests the same symbolism and takes up the flaming sword or what have you. And, you know, there's we're, there's just so many stories in A Song of Ice and Fire about father-son type of things, about children deal, dancing on the strings of their parents or atoning for the sins of their parents. And so I have to think that what what looked to be at first... Like every, you know, Azor Ahai is this one guy that spawned all these myths. It's more likely to be a group of people, a line of people, uh, something more loose like that. So, and then the other, the other part of this question was getting to is, like the what was Azor Ahai's motive, and how can people cause a moon disaster? How can people steer a comet into a moon? What was the point of it? So, I think the point of it is the symbolism of the fire of the gods. Like Prometheus stole fire from the gods. We've got the Grey King stealing fire from the storm god by way of the thunderbolt setting the tree on fire. We've got, you know, these meteors, forms of the fire of the gods. And so the important thing is putting that sort of mythical theme into the story. The practicalities of how it worked. For a long time, I was convinced that this event just happened and that it wasn't human magicians because how how does a magician cause a comet to hit a moon? It's fairly nonsensical. Um, and that is most likely to be the case, I have to say. Like as much as I've said about green seers causing it and Azorahai causing it, it's well possible that all of that is essentially just is is the myth of it. And it's human nature to attribute these events, obviously, to gods and people, when really just volcanoes just erupt and meteors just land sometimes. But so it it could be that Martin is using symbolism to imply the idea of this Azor high person or a Green Seer reaching up into the stars and steering the comet and breaking the moon somehow, or you know in, in the myth it's actually Nissa Nissa's cry of agony and ecstasy, which implies that it's sound that broke the moon. It could be that all of that is just for the theme of the story. And in actual fact, Martin is thinking that this shit just happened. It was just fated to happen. It was a comet that was just doomed to hit the fire moon at this given time. And that's that's the deal. Um, However, it is fantasy. So we can't rule out the idea that there's this really radical thing that somehow magicians we were able to do this. So the first thing I would suggest is that it was an accident. It wasn't an intentional steering of the comet into the moon. Perhaps you have the Church of Starry Wisdom, you've got Green Seers, they they all use song and sound. We've got these magical horns, Nissa Nissa's cry of anguish and ecstasy. There's a lot of clues about singing and sound, the moon singers. We got the wolves singing to the moon. We've got a lot of ideas about horns and singing, and even just the dragon binder horn. Think about it: dragons are, are comets, so dragon binder might be comet binder. Maybe that's how you do it. You blow the, you blow, you toot the horn, and it calls. Maybe there's like an asteroid belt. You toot the horn, and it calls one of those asteroids to the horn, and it's it's as simple as that. It's far fetched, and it's wild, and it's probably not the case. And that's why I say like disclaimer, most likely thing is that it just happened. But if that's not the case, there's basically two good guesses I have. And one is the horn aided with singing and sound magic. Uh, And the other one would be the idea of astral projection through the weirwood net. So instead of Bran riding a dragon, maybe there's a way to ride the comet. Um, It's implied. It's implied that Bran can ride the comet. And it's implied that Danny can do it too. Uh, when she's flying on Drogon's back, there's two different scenes where she says, oh, I could reach up and touch the comet, or oh, the moon is so close I could touch it when she's flying on Drogon. So it's definitely like Martin's is giving us those symbolic clues about people being able to touch comets and touch moons. But I just, it's so far-fetched, it's hard to propose with any real conviction. But I will one day give you uh, what we call the Astrobrand Theory, Ravenous Reader and I, she's a big fan of the Astrobrand Theory. And I will also give you the Horn Theory, which I will credit to Evil A, um, who has a blog that I have linked to on the front of LuciferMeansLightbringer.com. Uh, that's the Blue Winter Roses blog. And she's the first one who pointed out the, uh, the comet thing. Uh, deep Impact Drogon, yeah, that's the other that's the other name for uh, the astro. That's I guess that's the Drogon version. So the 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 theory is uh, Brand wargs Drogon and and flies him up, and uh, picks off the comet or something like that. Pure tinfoil, like I said, pure tinfoil. But uh, in any case, Brand's got to fly, right? So, in essence, you know, to go back to this question here. We're not necessarily supposed to think of all these different pieces of the myth, the Grey King and the Green Men and Azor High all coming together. Um, and really, probably the best answer to this question will come after we get the ba- last two books and we see how Martin ends this story. Uh, because we're told that we are going to see the Green Men. And so if we see the Green Men, that's definitely going to be like a step up in the level of magic that's out there. So you know. Let's see, it looks like I got tagged here in a couple of questions. What do I think of the Knightly Order of the Green Hand to which Wyman Manderley belongs, and used to be the old uh, Lords of the Reach? I really, this is one of the, you know, I love the Sacred Order of the Green Men, Isle of Faces stuff, and the Order of the Green Hand is, is really, it seems like, really similar. It's basically human knights that You know, were, I guess, formed in the tradition of Garth the Green or whatever. And I know what Martin's doing with it symbolically. I'm not sure what the practical, I mean, it's just a knightly tradition in Westeros, you know, like, I guess before the Seven and the Andals had knights, the Order of the Green Hand was probably just like, you know, some elite warriors, I guess, in the Reach. But as far as symbolism, the whole point of Manderly still being a member of the Green Hand is White Harbor. I'm going to talk about White Harbor a lot in the next episode, which is going to be about the last hero. And White Harbor is a primo dragon locked in ice symbol because it's got the wolf's den, uh, you know, in the middle of White Harbor, which is a white city. And in the wolf's den is a gaoler named Garth. So that's interesting because uh, you guys know that weirwoods are like a trap in a prison. Uh, for Garth, people, and so here we've got Garth trapped in the prison as the prisoner, and there's a lot of just wild stuff going. That's one of my favorite chapters. Uh, speaking of favorite chapters, and so the whole idea of Mandalay being the Order of the Green Hand, uh, it, it plays into the intersection of Weirwoods and the others and the sort of celestial side of things. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you what's up with all that. Uh, I've mentioned. I keep mentioning. I'm sorry to keep mentioning this without giving you the essay, but Ravenous Reader's great under-the-sea metaphor discovery where the green sea is in the ocean and green seers, these two phrases are being swapped. And so a lot of the stuff that Patchface sees under the sea is actually taking place in the Weirwood net. I'm actually, we will give you, like, (laughs) promise we're going to give you episodes about this as soon as I can. But uh, if you notice, Wyman Manderly has the Merman's Court, where his whole throne room is decked out like under the sea with like mermaids, and there's like the water line is like up high, you know, so it looks, it feels like you're just right underwater. And then he's the the Merling King on the throne there. So all that stuff is powerful Green Seer metaphor. So the fact that he's a member of the Green Hand sort of helps that entire thing happen. Uh, Zach Grinikoff, grin. Uh, uh, oh man, I've I don't have your whole Patreon name on tap. Zach is one of my Patreon subscribers, and I gave you a particularly good name, but I don't remember what it is right now. Let's see. Uh, he asks, what about Winterfell? Do you think it's possible that there, or maybe uh, still is a green seer down in the crypts? Absolutely. Not like a living one, but is there like a weird throne down in the crypts? I'd have to think so. I'd like to see Bran sit on it eventually. Uh, that's one of the predictions I've made. So don't think i was first on that one but i do think that will happen and winterfell is another great uh, dragon locked in ice symbol as i'm sure many of you have guessed especially since it has the warm water running through the walls which is compared to blood but it's obviously surrounded by ice and snow and the stark sigil is more the same with a gray wolf surrounded by white ice and snow let's see here is the guy in the black gate the drowned god um I mean, I don't believe that there are gods, but I guess I could sort of see where you're going with that since he's under the sea, quote-unquote. Uh, I don't know. I guess we'll have to talk about that. Uh, Steven Stark with a super chat. Are you going to Khan of Thrones? Hoping to meet you. Yes, I am planning on going to Khan of Thrones. I cannot make it to Ice and Fire Khan because it's only a couple weeks away from the other Khan. I can't go to both, but I will be going to Khan of Thrones and I'm trying to wheedle my way onto a speaking slot. I'll I'll let you know if that happens. Let's see here. You guys are throwing lots of good stuff out in the chat. Thank you very much. Let's see. Kevin Meeker says, in my opinion, this series is an indictment of feudalism. Yes, feudalism and a bunch of other things. Let's see, I don't know if that will be related to the other's invasion, but I do think that uh, will affect who will sit the iron chair at the end. Yeah, I'd like to see it dissolved. You know, um, like I said, I love the King's Moot because it's like the most democratic thing that we see uh, in basically the whole story. And so I would like to see, I like the, all the theories about the Iron Throne gets dissolved and uh, Westeros is more democratic after whatever happens, but we'll see. Uh, I've also pointed out that there's a lot of female rulers coming to the fore all over the place. And that could definitely figure into a change in power structure. Uh, And yes, that is correct. I respect Preston's work, but don't subscribe to the science fiction theory. However, I think he does a good job covering all the thousand world stories, uh, which I get a lot out of. And he's a good presenter and seems like a nice guy. So, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Let's see. You mentioned Garth as a trap. I assume it's... Also, a known uh, garth is a collection of trees like a grove. Yes, a garth is another name for like a sacred grove or a central enclosed uh, garden. So, basically, a god's wood is a garth. And because fishing weirs are also fish garths, weirwoods could also be looked at as a garth wood. So, weirwoods are garth trees in garth gardens. And uh, yeah, so you think garth has something to do with the weirwoods? I think so, probably. After all, Garth's the only one who's that we know of uh, is credited with planting a weirwood. And those would be the three singers uh, at Old Town. Yes, Neanna the Wise, kind of getting right to it. She says, does a dragon locked in ice parallel Garth trapped in the weirwood or a high trapped in the weirwood for that matter? And the answer is yes, absolutely. The weirwoods are used to parallel both moons. That's kind of one of the big reveals that I'm working up to. Because um, I've already shown you how the Weirwood symbolism as a flaming tree is perfectly synonymous with the fire moon and Nissa Nissa. That was the whole Weirwood goddess series I was talking about that. But we also get frozen Weirwoods armored in ice that are pale shadows. And of course that sounds like an other. And we get a few frozen trees. I have a feeling we're going to get more. And so the Weirwoods essentially symbolize both moons. There's there's sort there's this cool portal thing uh, where there's like a gate and well, I don't want to spoil it but uh, yes so bottom line Azor High sort of like enters the weirwood net through the fire moon symbol if you will but the place that he's actually stuck in is is the ice moon and the ice moon being stuck in the ice moon is the same as being stuck inside the weirwood net or being trapped under the sea and that's why the others have all that frozen pond. Symbolism going on. All right. Do you think the children of the forest are in the cave Ariane was? Uh, that seems to me. Okay, so Linus, that's a great question. And uh, me and Quinn talk about that extensively uh, in the podcast I recorded with him two days ago. So I will refer you to that, give you a reason to check that out because we talked all about that. Weirwood at the Citadel with the purple moss. Wink, wink. Yeah, that's a great one, Zach. Um, that entire tree on it's it's on the uh, Isle of Ravens, where um, the old blind maester has the white ravens and stuff, uh, and it's where Marwyn hangs out. There's a weirwood tree that is like half dead, and it's got purple moss on it, and it's basically a living. Metaphor for Azora High, the half dead green seer. And I'm going to talk about that one day, but good job for spotting that, Zach. Good job. Okay, so Thunderclap. Enjoyed Gemma's readings with her Middle Earth accent. Yeah, that was a treat, huh? That was uh, Gemma from Secrets of the Citadel. You can find her on YouTube, Secrets of the Citadel. And she, likewise, just like Adidas of Ice and Fire. There's a lot of really deep videos that you will appreciate, uh, likes a lot of the same topics that I do, and she's fun to listen to, and she's fun to talk to. So had to get her on, thought that would be fun to have her do the readings. I'm going to get Quinn to do some readings, too, on an episode here one day. Does every man to the takes the Night's Watch vows become an orphan? Uh, symbolically, kind of. Um, it's kind of similar to the others, how they're a brotherhood, they're all brothers uh, you know, it's the same thing. They're brothers. They've got no other family except for their brothers. So they are kind of like orphans. Uh, question two. Are there any other combination house sigils or words that have been foreshadowed, i.e. Stark Aaron would be a winged wolf under a crescent moon, or Stark Baratheon? Ours is this the winter. Uh, that's, I, I'm not sure. I just had to read those because that was pretty clever. But I, uh, We've got the... Uh, the wolf with a fish in its mouth, the wolfish, wolf fish uh, that symbolizes you know, the Tully Stark union. And that's sort of punned on uh, in A Feast for Crows when Jamie and company are assessing the loyalty of the people who used to serve with Rob Stark and they're saying, methinks their hearts are still wolfish, wolf fish. Anyways. And then let's see here. Question three Is Sansa going to transform from her dark meteor appearance to Night Queen? If so, What's she about to do? What's she going to do about her hair? Well, if you think about it, this already happened. Um, When she left King's Landing, after doing all that Firemoon Nissa Nissa stuff, she dyes her hair dark, and she also dyes uh, the hound's white cloak that he leaves her dark green. And that's the cloak she wears when she leaves. So there's two implications of her turning dark. And then, of course, she takes up the name Stone, Elaine Stone. So now she's like a dark stone. Which is a perfect fire moon dark meteor symbol, and then she <laughs> flies off and lands in the Erie where she becomes effectively knight's queen by being the uh, you know locked in ice or whatever so then uh, when you know that whole snow castle scene in the Erie, where she's making the snow castle and she kisses Peter she's also making child snow knights meaning snowmen uh, but that's the same phrase used. To imply the others when uh, Sam's talking to Cotter Pike, when he says, did you stab another or, you know, was it just some child's snow knight? So Sansa's already doing Night's Queen stuff in the Vale. Um, she might do more of it, obviously, uh, but that's already happening. And I'll also point out that um, these long character arcs, they repeat. Um, just because Sansa did Fire Moon stuff in King's Landing and then Ice Moon stuff in the Vale she might she might do the whole sequence over again in any given chapter. So, it's you have to remember that when you're looking at the the larger arcs is that within those arcs are many chapters in which they may depict their entire cycle in miniature. So, that threw me off about Danny for a while because she does this transformation during the alchemical wedding where she turns from a moon into, you know, the last dragon or whatever. But then later she's a moon maiden again, and then it occurred to me, well, you know, George is, is showing us her cycle, like, in miniature over and over. So, all right. And Thunderclap says, thank you. The answer was pleasing, I guess. Let's see. Uh, yeah, so, Kevin, I definitely think George is playing off of the idea of the aspen trees or those those giant fungi organisms that connect the forest. That's another thing I talked about with Quinn on the Ideas of Ice and Fire stream uh, that we did Yesterday, or Thursday, rather, that will be out next week. So look for more of that. That's, that's a pretty cool line of research there. Can Mel's Shadow Baby not be what killed Penrose or Renly? No. Absolutely not. They It was a Shadow Baby, definitely. Uh, let's see. I like the joke and dance about a knight losing his horse becomes a snowman without a sword. Yeah, okay, so... You have to pull that quote. I don't remember that one. I mean, I vaguely remember it, but let's see. Fashima Scott. Now I understand why the dragon had blue flame when it put a hole in the wall on the show. And so, yeah, this is something I talked about right after the finale of last season is that even if the showrunners aren't hip to the whole like burning ice thing that's in the books, uh, you know, it was set up for them naturally with the whole idea of. Being able to white a dragon, and so when we see the knight's king sort of his cold energy animate the dragon, and then the dragon breathes blue flame, you know if if that would wanted to be really technically correct with the book, you'd have to assume that that flame is really cold, but it's so cold that it burns, and thus it like I don't know like vaporizes the ice or whatever. So the big question for me is like should that if, if that ice dragon like roasted a person would that person catch on fire? And if they did catch on fire, would that be cold fire somehow? I don't know. It's magic. But nevertheless, we've been seeing the others with blue star eyes from the beginning. I mean, it's like the defining thing about them is their burning blue star eyes. So the idea of burning cold, I mean, it's baked into their whole thing. And it was cool to see the show sort of pick up on that and run with that. Uh, And I've I was very excited, to be honest. Like, There's a lot wrong with what the show's doing, uh, and a lot you can criticize, but, I mean, come on, that was pretty fucking cool, I thought. The, uh, the whited dragon destroying the wall with blue flame, I mean, I was clapping. I thought it was cool. I don't think that's how it'll happen in the books, but I think it'll be an ice dragon meteor, so symbolically, it'll be similar. Where's the horns? Well, let me see. Oh, there's 101 people watching shit i guess i owe you guys some horns hang on a second whoa curveball change up you didn't see that coming did you (laughs) haha it's the crow in the snow now i'm going to do the whole podcast in crow voice (laughs) no i won't do that to you but i did give you a little something there you go keep you on your toes and thanks for coming everybody 101 is a great audience for saturday <laughs> no please no yeah no i i limited the crow voice don't worry yeah corn corn i want blood not corn let's see and let's watch the viewership plummet now <laughs> mother of Jeebus. yeah looks like i got a reaction huh would the others be able to summon some kind of meteor to destroy the wall? Well, maybe if they got themselves a horn. Uh, you know, actually, I hadn't thought about that before. That's a great. That's a great, uh, that's a great idea. I'll have to think about that if there's a mechanism. Maybe they have the real horn of winter. Okay, Monica's got the quote for me. Destriers, be- Destriers began to perish of exhaustion and exposure. What is a night without a horse, men riddled? a snowman with a sword any horse that went down was butchered that's pretty good snowman with a sword that's the others all right and of course they do ride horses that go down dead horses uh, won't, won't the others pass under the wall no that wall is going to come down baby it's coming down and i think again i think that's a great way for the whole meteor thing to happen is to cause the new long night is it'll knock down the wall uh, while it, you know, so we'll get the wall coming down and the darkness happening all at the same time. So if, um, like I said, the the two things that I've got for potential for magicians to break a moon involves Dragonbinder horn or Bran doing astral projection. I don't see Bran trying to break the moon Um, So unless he does it accidentally, I think it's the Dragonbinder horn is our best guess. And as you saw in Moons of Ice and Fire 4, there's a ton of symbolism linking Euron to the others. And it's hard to figure out what direct connection Euron's going to have with the others. And if he triggers the new Long Night, then uh, that'll be the answer. Is Tyrion uh, a dark meteor figure which doesn't drill into an ice moon? Sansa, a dark media that does. Roster revolver. Um, what are you asking me now? Let's see. So I'm not. I I have to take a pass on the Tyrion question. I just we just figured out that he's a knight's king figure uh, the other day, and I don't know. Um, I'd have to just look at all his scenes to figure out if he has dragon locked in ice symbolism or if that's something still to come. Um, he does get locked in a barrel. <laughs> I don't know if that counts, uh, but... Okay, next question here. Chicksalube Rob, blue stars are the hottest, my friend, because I mentioned, I said that white stars were the hottest, and blue was the second hottest. Chicksalube Rob says that no, blue stars are the hottest. The hottest spectral types are in order, O, B, A, F, G, K, M, and L. O stars are vivid blue, blue uh, B are bluish white, A are white. So the burning stars thing actually works with your cold is the hottest idea quite well. Indeed, it lines up perfectly. Uh, so there you go. Thanks for the sort of nerdy uh, correction there. Always good to be correct. What did you say, Raven Salix? Tyrion penetrates the ice moon via his plunge into the icy cold sorrows. Oh, yeah, totally. Duh. And the whole... um. The uh, Voice of the First Men uh, has identified the Bridge of Dream as a good weirwood symbol because part of the whole weir thing is that a weir is a bridge. And so we've got this bridge over this river where, like, the time is looped around. It's pretty good weirwood uh, symbolism. And we've also identified the stone men and uh, grayscale in general as being others' symbolism. So, yeah, him going under the sea in the cold sorrows right there, that's definitely dragon locked in ice symbolism. Nice job. Ravenous Reader's so smart. I'm glad she's my friend. All right, so now let's keep going. Vertigon, I mentioned, oh, so he's quoting part of my essay where I was talking about ice and fire being the yin and yang of the story, and I was talking about how there's no such thing as purity, there's a white dot on the black side, black dot on the white side, and how everything contains an element of its opposite, how the dividing line is not straight, but rather an S-shape, and so his comment was, for me, this has become the most enticingly complex complex enigma within the series, the discussion on the nature of duality. As you have pointed out, LML, it's important to view duality not from the false position of a moral uh, duality of pure binary opposites in the direct and eternal conflict with one another, with one being ultimately positive and the other negative, which would be Mel's perception of duality, but rather from the perspective of ontological Taoist dualism, that that these two opposite forces complement and interact with one another, that they do, in fact, rely on one another to exist. In my mind, there's no more uh, encapsulating image of this coexistence than the one offered in Daenerys' final trip in the House of the Undying. And I have to say... I felt a little dumb for not uh, including this one. Uh, Brienne the Builder's asking me, will Jamie get Widow's Wail? Could Tyrion actually have Widow's Wail? I don't think Tyrion would have it, um, but Bran- uh, Jamie could certainly get it. And that'd be cool if he had that and Brienne had Oathkeeper. That'd be pretty dope. Be sort of a fulfillment of that dream, right? Finally, the stair opened. And this is Daenerys in the House of the Undying. Finally, the stair opened. To her right, a set of wide wooden doors had been thrown open. They were fashioned of ebony and weirwood, black and white grains swirling and twisting in strange interwoven patterns. They were very beautiful, yet somehow frightening. Daenerys, uh, the storm of Swords. So that's exactly what I'm talking about. We've seen the black and white weirwood and ebony thing on Tobo Mott's shop and at the uh, House of Black and White. Um, But this is different here because the grains are actually swirling and twisting interwoven. And that is a very, very good depiction of that sort of yin and yang principle that that we were talking about. So really good catch there by Vertigon. Thank you for the catch and the great comment. And uh, I probably will have to go back to that scene and check it out. Yeah, that's pretty good yin and yang stuff right there. So I've got a super chat here from Stormy4400. Stormy Daniels, is that you? (laughs) The sapphires Simeon put in his eyes were really lapis lazuli, With the as root of Azure, a blue stone, play on words with Azor. Oh, okay. Uh, let's see. Also his name reflects Simon Peter, who started the Christian church. I theorize he is Azor High. So Simeon Star Eyes. So Simeon and Simon obviously cognates and so right, so okay, I follow you. The Star Eyes Instead of sar-, sar sapphire,s maybe they were lapis lazuli, which is a totally good guess because that's a stone that uh, ancient man definitely revered and often used for uh, sacred uses. One of the more famous blue stones besides sapphire, uh, so that's cool. Azure and uh, azur, and I know there's an azure emperor in the golden empire of Y.T. So there you go. Unchained, ravenous reader, blue tiger. There's a new th- play thing for you guys. We love the phonetics, man. George really does a lot with, uh, with grammar and stuff. So that is really cool. Um, if if that's the case, if, that, if a, one of the things that Azor is supposed to reference is azure, meaning blue, then that's kind of a hint that Azor High is the knight's King built right into his name. So that's pretty fucking cool. Nice one. I will give you a hat tip if and when I use that in a series. We will explore that idea further and see if it bears out. Uh, we'll have to look for all the uses of uh, lapis lazuli in the books and see what it says. Um, Matthew Stoyles points out that a wooden barrel is a good symbol of a weirwood. It's just the wooden barrel that Tyrion is stuffed in. Yes, indeed. And another parallel one is when um, Tyrion is traveling to the ruin. In Illyrio's uh, palanquin, and uh, anytime they're in a litter or anything like that, that's like, you know, primed for symbolism, and there's a lot of stuff going on there. So that's when he drinks the fire wine and dreams of dragons. All right, let's see. Yeah, Daenerys has some amazing translations Dan Ares and Dane. Uh, yeah, so, but Simeon being able to see without eyes, yeah, that's another green seer clue too, isn't it? That's cool. I've always wondered about Simeon's star eyes is loaded with symbolism, but I've never been able to place what's going on there. So maybe that'll give us uh, an entrance into figuring out that mystery. Cool. I love that. I love it when people make good finds like that. And that's kind of what I'm talking about. Oh, look, Stormy's in the chat. The word sapphire only came into use after the Middle Ages. Before then, the stone was always called lapis lazuli. Ah, that is true. And I read that somewhere. There you go. Nice job. So, what I was talking about earlier, um, you know, the the person that asked me, hey, can you, you know, give us the hints first before you give us the whole theory? Um, You know, if you're sharp, you look at, like I said, look at anything I've told you, and there's always further places you can take it uh, because there's a lot in these books, and I haven't caught it all by any means. I'm just sort of trying to blaze a coherent path right down the center, but there's all kinds of things on the periphery that I'm passing over all the time because I just can't side branch too much so uh, yeah nice hey Stormy if we're not friends on Twitter come hit me up on Twitter so we can chat about that more that's pretty sweet I echo Melanie's thank you there okay so oh and she's got a a comment on the uh, the door with the black and white here the interwoven nature of the opposite grains is one that generates a clear impression of fear for Danny so what exactly is this fear born of? my own speculation suggests That is, in fact the primary fear, the fear of the unknown. The strangeness of these patterns invokes the tragic terror of never being able to fully comprehend the nature of duality of existence. And this is very much a Lovecraftian sort of vibe now. Unable to see the dividing line between the white and the black, between good and evil, between burning ice and frozen fire. This dilemma is an undeniable um, torment for almost all the characters, and it is a central motivation for many of their acts. With the grain with the grim fear of uncertainty as John flexes his burnt hand, or Daenerys repeats her quiet, quiet little mantra of a philic back I am lost, our heroes our heroes march into the unknown. In my mind, LML, you are undeniably nearing the beating heart of the tale as you've managed to raise the mythological symbols woven into the text to their philosophical lineages, which are the undercurrents that animate the force of the narrative. See, now, that is good stuff. I I wish I was that eloquent. I mean, that is... This is why the symbolism is important is because it's not divorced from the themes. It's not just like the nerdy world building like, oh, look, this is kind of like Zeus and this is like Mithras. Like George is picking these myths and, you know, usually because of their themes. And he always talks about the heart in conflict. Well, all these classic stories are full of hearts in conflict. And this is a great example, like the fear of the unknown. That's what Lovecraft is so fascinated with. And I think that's what George... Uh, resonates, you know. That's the part of Lovecraft's work that resonates with George, and yeah, that whole the whole idea of like gray characters and hearts in conflict. It's just what this person is saying here. Like you don't know right and wrong. It's hard to tell. There isn't a clear line, and nevertheless, you have to open that door and make a choice. Uh, so yeah, that's it's really a really nice bit of philosophy that she yanked out of that scene, sort of building on what I was saying in the in the essay. So great job. Okay, so uh, I'm being told that Sandra M. on Twitter posted a great post about sibian stars just a couple of days ago. Well, if someone will kindly tag me at the Dragon LML, I would love to check it out. All right. Yes, that was a beautifully written comment. And once again, that was from Vertigone. I'm not sure if uh, it's a he or a her, but it doesn't really matter. It is a brilliantly written comment, so thank you. And, of course, if flattery doesn't hurt. Antonio Lore. Thanks for the video. Do you think it could be possible that the conscience of the Knight's King would be living either inside, uh, full, or partially in Bloodraven's head? So I don't think that he's in Bloodraven's head, but I do think there's a good chance that one or both of Knight's King and Knight's Queen are somehow in the Weirwood net. It's hard to know like, how distinct their consciousness might be, um, but I do think some of that mojo is in the Weirwood Net, and I think that uh, it, to, in the sense that um, Blood Raven is hooked up to the Weirwood Net, there is a possibility that he could be influenced by Night's King or that Night's King inside the Weirwood Net is privy to what Blood Raven is doing. They're spying on each other. Um, this is one of the main things that I think the show really got right, Uh, is they showed Bran meeting Night's King inside the Weirwood Net. And I absolutely think there's something like that that's going to happen in the books. Um, Bran's going to be having a confrontation, possibly Jon too, um, with somebody inside the Weirwood Net. And there's a ton of clues uh, that there was some original fight inside the Weirwood Net. And I think that whole thing about, um, is it Simeon Star Eyes that goes to the wall to see the Hellhounds fight, I believe? Because the Hellhounds fighting is a metaphor for the two contestants fighting inside the weirwood net. I am pretty sure. Yep, the crab king and the old man of the river is another version of that fight inside the weirwood net because those are both river creatures under the sea. That's right, Melanie. Dude, ravenous readers under the sea metaphor is seriously like the coolest thing anyone has found, uh, you know, that I've come across. I think it's just... Because all of the aquatic symbolism... It's, like, thrown in there as because Martin loves deep ones and all that stuff. But he's not really, like, there's not a sensible way to use all these mermen in the actual story. But he's used all the aquatic stuff as a metaphor for green greenseer stuff. So it's, it's just damn clever, man. I love this series. Uh, and, by the way, I'd also like to mention, hey, Johan, thanks for the compliment. Um, when I was talking with Quinn the other day, we also talked about the idea of how the others are created from the Weirwood net and what part of the Night's King might be in the Weirwood net and how that all works. So I definitely would encourage you to listen to that because we got pretty deep. Pretty deep. The uh, the seaweed and the Weirwood paste and the shade of the evening was flowing. I'll say that. Uh, yeah, and we talked about the idea of the of the others being a hive mind uh, like so many of the creatures in Martin's older stories, Bloodware blogging. Yes, we talked about that. First off, thanks for finally coming up. And this is from my buddy Durin Durin. says, thanks for coming up with a reason for Eamon to have that blue gemstone eye. The connection to the ice dragon has always been obvious, but not having a reason for the connection has bothered me for a long time. And now we know why that is existent. As for Rainie's, the queen who never was, being in this role of the fire moon, I think there is an interesting parallel between Rainie's and the Amethyst Emperor slash in that, like Daenerys, Rhaenys is another usurped queen. The clear pattern is that no Targ slash queen ever gets to rule without being usurped. Yeah, it's kind of true, isn't it? Kind of true. <clears throat> A lot of usurpation going on. Um, and that's another great parallel between the Firemoon queens. She's usurped, and even Elia's kind of usurped by, like, Lyanna, if you think about it. She kind of got set aside, so... Yeah, I love it when you find those themes that run through there. Let's see here. You guys are gonna put up have to put up with the cough drop uh clanking around a little bit. My voice is getting a little a little dry. I've done I did a that podcast with Quinn two days ago and then yesterday, me and Quinn did one with Gray Area about all things Valeria. So I have done whew, I've done a lot of talk. A lot of talking. Yeah, man, that girl power is getting getting cock-blocked. Not for long, though, if you look at uh, a lot of these older female characters like Stoneheart and uh, Ghost of Highheart, there's a lot of vengeance going on. Look at people like Arya and Daenerys, and you can see, like, the the Mother Goddess is always vengeful when you wrong her. And it's very similar to, you know, nature itself, which is often identified with the Mother Goddess. Like, you don't want to cross nature, you don't want to cross those elves you know they will they will get you they will get you back and uh one day I'm going to get to show you all the kali symbolism that's applied to Danny and uh that's really a trip no uh, gray hasn't uploaded it yet um it's that'll probably be next week too it was like it was really long she's got to edit it we just recorded so uh other than Worgen, do you think there was more importance to the dire wolves uh not direct importance uh but symbolically they're the hellhounds which figure in a lot of these myths so Let's see. Uh, I think, Thunderclap says, I think Sansa will change her hair from dark to light using honey, which contains naturally occurring hydrogen peroxide. Does that fit with the moon waxing and waning? Um, Yeah, it could. And also, honey is a really important symbol because if you remember, the the ash tree has a lot of honey mythology tied to it. Um, The Melii used the honey sap of the ash tree to feed Zeus, for example. Uh, So it's and there's a lot of I think Val's if you remember Val has the honey uh, blonde hair, which is like a dark blonde. So if if Sansa had honey in her hair somehow, that would be cool. And that also might be like the whole bear and the maiden fair thing. I've got a I haven't explored all that uh, honey symbolism, but we were just talking about the bear and the maiden fair the other day. Uh, One (laughs) somebody's asking for the bass solo, so I don't have that queued up. Uh, johan but uh one day i will i will hold out a little slap bass solo for the uh we hit a certain amount of viewers and also let me give uh san rixian a shout out real quick here i've got her uh the north remember shirt on which she was kind enough to send me one and of course uh san rixian does a lot of cool t-shirts you can find her stuff on twitter she's uh Done a couple of pieces of art for me too that may one day end up on a T-shirt. So I just want to say what's up to her. Uh, this uh, see this is thunderclap again. Sending lots of good questions. I assume you were testing us when you said John will become a kinslayer when he rises again and kills his black brothers. He already killed Corn halfhand. Did I pass? Nope. Uh, that was just me. A bunch of people pointed that out to me that John already is a kinslayer because he killed Corn. Yeah, I I just I missed that one. Good catch. Uh, John jokingly says to Val, "Are you stealing my wolf?" As he pointed out, if it were the other way around and Ghost brought Val to John, would that be imitating how Vermeer Sixskins uses his shadow cat to bring women to him? Uh, that's an interesting, interesting observation. Uh, I know the the whole idea of Vermeer Sixskins sending his animals out to get women for him. Is very similar to the idea of the green seer as the sun sending his consciousness as the comet into the weirwood, which is the moon. So um, the idea is, you know, if Varimir is sending his wolves to fetch women to him, it's pretty much the same idea. The women would be the moon, uh, and the wolves would be the comet that sort of makes, bridges that gap between the sun and the moon. Um, so yeah, I'm very curious to see. What all happens with Ghost and John, obviously when they when they do the resurrection, so Bloodware blogging asks, Can dreams and ice and fire be BS and just manipulation? Well yeah, definitely. I mean Martin loves that idea of, you know, people uh, manipulating others by masquerading as, you know, gods and stuff. So we'll have to see. I mean, a lot of people think Blood Raven and Quaid are responsible for like all the dreams and visions everybody has. So I really don't know. We'll have to see. Miss Vengen's one month ago, this was uh, before she joined Patreon. She just joined Patreon in the last month, so thanks a lot. Appreciate that. Jon Snow is the snowflake dragonglass. Yes, he is. <laughs> the special snowflake dragonglass. You are probably one of the few that know what it really is too. Of course I do. Let's see. I've been researching magical properties of well everything now. Started with stones, gems, and wood. Now even got Garth and his kids in there. To me he is Dionysus, or a version of him. Yeah, definitely. Dionysus is another version of the classic, you know, a fertility horned god that's sacrificed to turn the seasons. Um, I I love your work, thanks for bringing your aspect to A Song of Ice and Fire Not many see the connections in the brilliant mind of George Yep, I mean, as I always say, that's like my number one motivation Is just sort of getting everybody to appreciate George Kind of starts with me just going, holy shit, this stuff is cool I gotta tell everybody about it Because I love clever things And this Song of Ice and Fire is basically like the most clever thing I've come across in my entire life So it's just too much fun Emma Smith, Archmaestress Emma, Archmaester Emma. With Val being such an amazing Night's Queen symbolism, uh, Night's Queen uh, character, does her first lover Jarl have any interesting symbolism? He always climbed too fast is the only thing I could think of. Yeah, that's exactly right. Climbing too fast, too high. It's typical Morningstar stuff. Um, you know, overreaching, hubristic, Night's King and Azor high. So the thing is that... um. What's happening is uh, Val's primary identity is Knight's Queen, so all the people she hooks up with are going to be Knight's King figures, and Jarl sort of fits that, like the warrior who knew no fear. Um, You know, he's hungry for glory. He's, uh, you know, uh, there's a line where uh, John, you know, someone says uh, Val's Val's pet wants a sword, so he's climbing the wall trying to get a sword. So when you talk about climbing too high and too fast, he's climbing up to get a sword, and. You know, and the the wall is a moon symbol. So yeah, it's all there for him to be a knight's king figure climbing the wall. It's very similar to John, his scenes with the red fire, you know, turning to black ice inside the wall, or John's body being inside the cold cells of the wall. Same stuff, same stuff. Um, Now, interesting, Jarl dies while climbing towards the ice moon, and I think that's another clue about knight's king undergoing that death transformation. Uh, at some point, you know, certainly, just like Stannis having his life being sucked out by Melisandre. Why do I think Martin never gave us a point of view of any of the kings? Well, because I think he's—it's a—it's really an important statement because he's—he's showing us the kind of the people around the king, um, and it helps the king feel aloof when nobody's when you're not inside his head, um, because you know most people aren't the king. It's much more likely that you're someone within the proximity of the king. So I think it's a bit, kind of a statement that he hasn't done that. Uh, and and it, it's sort of like I was saying, he doesn't like to show the high point of the battle, but rather the effects and the fallout of the battle and the plotting and the setup. Leslie Powell, Lucifer means Lightbringer. Will the horn of winter that was found along with the Dragon Glass at the fist of the first men be used to wake giants, ice, uh, ice dragons? I don't know, man. You know, um, even though the, if you've ever watched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade or the Temple of Doom, I forget which one it is, but no, it's the Last Crusade where they're choosing the grail and there's all these fabulous cups and it's actually the humble wooden cup that's the true grail. Everybody thinks that this is Martin's sort of version of that, where this humble little horn that's broken is the real magical horn and the big fancy dragon binder is just for show. But I just can't get with that. I like Dragonbinder too much, and I think Dragonbinder is really important, and I have no idea what that old broken thing is going to do. So <laughs> I actually um, I actually don't know. But, um, yeah, I guess logic would dictate that it's probably important. But I don't know. I mean, John did blow it already, for what it's worth. It just didn't make any sound. A broken horn is like a broken sword. Yeah, I guess it would be. Even a broken sword can still kill, so... Yeah, Neander's got the same idea as Ravenous Reader. There, broken horn, broken sword. Perhaps, perhaps it's an ultrasonic. It'll be a subsonic weapon, even. Maybe it hits the brown note or something. Yeah, we'll have to see. In my opinion, did Victarion die, resurrect? I don't know. I don't think so. But something weird happened to him. He might be the equivalent of a fire white at this point. It's possible. I'm very curious about that. Let's see here. All right. Why would a Horn of Winter destroy an ice wall? I don't know. I mean, the whole thing about the wall doesn't make sense anyway. It's like, why would an ice wall keep out ice demons? I don't know. There's there's some mysteries about the wall. Actually, I'm going to talk about that in the next episode a little bit. I finally found a clue about who built the wall. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to save that. What do you think it could mean? Uh, let's say that if you drop the G from Merling, you get Merlin, which is the name of a falcon, and suggests Peter is the falcon king. I don't know because I don't know I don't know my King Arthur mythology very well. Um, but obviously that kind of fits with the whole uh, symbolism of the veil, since Peter is usurping the falcon the, you know, the seat of the Falcon Knight, if you will. So, I guess. But what, what does Merlin have to do with Peter Baelish? That's. Uh, oh, he's he sails on the Merlin King, doesn't he? I'll have to think about that. That is a pretty good stormy. It seems like we're going to be friends on Twitter. So we'll bring that up another time. We'll talk about that more. Let's see. Melanie, you got to go. OK, no problem. No problem. We'll see around. Let's see. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this and foster so much awesome community. Oh yes, well, the community has fostered me, and I try to foster back. So thanks for coming by. Do 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 Peter and Azor High figure. Oh yeah, he tries to feed Sansa pomegranates, so he's trying to drag her down into the underworld. He's definitely a Hades trickster type. And uh, again, if you're on Twitter, um, Unchained is really following out the trickster archetype right now and the high is something of a trickster uh, it, it seems so yeah peter peter's definitely a version of that uh, and of course he does you know he he does a two lunar queens with sans with a cat and Lysa. and then essentially sansa takes Lysa's place actually she, sansa takes both of their places since sansa is like a fire and an ice both but um yeah there's an original Someone pointed out that Lysa and Kat make a great Fire Moon Ice Moon pair, and Peter would be the Sun King at the at the center of that one. Uh, and also, also Brandon, I guess, to if you look at it differently. But is Dawn going to be Lightbringer? Well, just just straight up ask it, huh? I don't know. It's better question is, it was Dawn Lightbringer. Uh, I don't know what's going to be Lightbringer again. I have, I kind of have a feeling like lightbringer could be any valerian steel sword um depending on the circumstance and it doesn't have to be one sword but uh as you know i think dawn is the original ice so it's definitely a special sword and okay so that means looks like i'm through there was a couple on patreon that i'm gonna grab too you guys are keeping me going though a lot of good questions in the chat thank you very much Oh, And Monica Lamos is piping in There's also the association Between the Merlin King and a Marlin Swordfish via Marlin Lord Manderley's cousin Who wears the Merlin King helmet Ah very good So this is the kind of wordplay that Martin likes to do It's uh, He uses uh, You know words that sound alike uh, Words that are cognates of each other um, You know Any, any and all wordplay is fair game for George R.R. R. Martin Kevin Meeker Just signed up for Patreon While we were talking Thanks buddy You're a champ That is It's heartwarming What can I say Let's see here Ah yes Here it was Yen Sid, let's see, I actually read most of it before listening. Okay, so I've kind of uh, w- kind of wondered something, especially since the show depicted the scene of the White Walker creation by dragonglass in the heart. Is it possible the legend of Azor High Nissa Nissa was corrupted through the ages, and maybe he didn't kill her, but instead turned her into Night's Queen while performing blood magic? The similarities between the two rituals are kind of hard to ignore, and there's no explanation for the seemingly uh, only the only female other knight's queen. Uh, so okay, so that is that's pretty cool. Definitely is something a lot of people noticed on the show uh, when they showed knight's king being created with a dragon glass to the heart, because that's just so like the lightbringer forging formula. Now it could be that the showrunners simply took the lightbringer myth and fashioned their own magical ceremony using that as a parallel that would make sense it could be that we'll see something similar in the books where stabbing people with dragon glass or oily black stone perhaps transforms them into something um i'm not really sure i think it's possible but more likely that that it's not going to be that exactly um However, I do think those Craster babies, uh, as opposed to being turned into White Walkers like the show shows us, I think the Craster babies are probably killed, and their life force is used to create the White Walker, something like that. So perhaps the killing is done with obsidian, or or the black stone, or something like that. Um, but the great thing about that show scene is that it it sort of demonstrates my dragon locked in ice principle really, really well. It might be an accident, but that's it right there, like the black meteor going in and then animating with cold fire. It's it's cool. I kind of hope that there is something similar in the books because it's it just fits the pattern so well. Uh, the other part of that question was, is Nissa Nissa knight's queen? And this is a question a lot of people ask. I don't know because oftentimes we see two fire moon queens like Visenya and Rhaenys. And then we see, like, you know, Leanna and Elia. We see Melisandre and Night's Queen. And they're very fire and ice. They're different. However, we also have people like Sansa, who definitely, definitely does fire moon things first in King's Landing and then definitely, definitely becomes ice queen in the Eyrie. Now, if you think about this scenario, you've got your fire moon and you got your ice moon. Fire moon blows up. Piece of the fire moon goes into the ice moon, okay? You could see that as the fire moon becoming the ice moon. That is happening in a sense. And that's what Sansa's doing. She's a piece of fire moon going into the ice, creating this burning ice, ice moon. This now represents Night's Queen. But at the same time, that fire moon, there's a lot of it that explodes... Uh, that doesn't go into the ice moon. I think I switched hands there, but uh, you get the point. A lot of the fire moon pieces fall to the ground. And so that Nissa, Nissa didn't become Night's Queen. And those meteors are important because those are the ones that cause the long night. So I don't know. If you want to think that Night's Queen was Nissa, Nissa I can't tell you that you're wrong. Um, <clears throat> but I tend to think they're separate however they both have clues about being weirwood goddess types so hopefully we'll figure it out when we keep looking at it but as to that i'm gonna have to leave that unanswered and let you guys you know be the judge so feel free to uh pipe in with your opinion about that do you think nissa nissa is the knight's queen were they the same actual person or not be curious to see what y'all think maybe i will do a twitter poll okay zach is pointing out that he thinks that having two nissas in the nissa nissa name represents two mood maidens maybe not just one so like they're both nissa nissa yeah i agree with that if they're separate then they're definitely um in the same mold and they both get the nissa nissa treatment they both have lightbringer children and they both go through uh, you know, the whole alchemical transformation. So, yeah, so it looks like Ravenous Reader says Nissanissa and Knight's Queen are the same person. She votes for that. Uh, and James Clemson says Nissanissa might be a line of people like Zora High. Very true. The Nissanissa stuff that shows her as an elf woman tied to the Weirwoods might mean that Knight's uh, Queen was another sort of Weirwood goddess type, uh, just like the original Nissa, Nissa That makes sense to me. Stormy says she thinks Nissa, Nissa skin changed someone who became the Night's Queen. So that would be like Nissanissa Nissa gets killed, she goes into the weirwood net, and then she somehow gets out again and uh, inhabits a new body, if you will, which would be Night's Queen. I kind of like that idea, if they're the same people, that it's, that it's something like that. Um, that is kind of cool. So yeah, good uh good fodder for discussion there. How are we at time? We're coming up on two hours. Oh right. That means we're gonna wrap it up here soon. So any last questions that you have? Uh any last super chats you wanna send in? And of course, guys, I'm thankful just for you listening and Attending and stuff. Uh, I'm always very grateful for Patreon support, but if you know, I'm a I'm a humble man. I'm a working man. Uh, I support History of Westeros, but I don't have a lot of extra dollars. So, like, dude, if you're tight on money, don't don't worry about it. I'm gonna keep making these podcasts. Other people are gonna keep funding me. Feel free to listen and enjoy. Share my stuff. You know, if uh, if you got the extra bread, then absolutely sign up for Patreon. Get yourself a cool nickname. And keep me going with this stuff, uh, definitely. But I just want to say I'm I'm happy that anybody's listening at all. I mean, this I'm doing podcasts about metaphor and symbolism and really nerdy stuff, and I'm just excited so many people like it. So, uh, yes, I did, ravenous reader. I, I saw the the I don't even know how to say that, but the word assassin is in Nissa Nissa. If you write it out all all together, so of course I've showed you that after Nissa Nissa dies, she becomes like a weird assassin. So that might not be an accident. Philip Hayes, what's up there, buddy? Philip, longtime supporter. Any clues of the clue? Uh, any clues on the clue you found about who really built the wall? Hmm. Um, I really want to save that one, but. I would say look for clues in other people who have built other walls just throughout the Seven Kingdoms. Look for famous people that are credited with building some kind of wall, and you'll find some clues. Do I have any interest in Rohan Weber and the Tattered Prince? Um, Well, those are completely separate people, but I talked about Rohan Weber in... Uh, the Weirdwood Goddess series. And yes, I love her. I love her character and that whole story. And there's tons of awesome uh, Weirdwood symbolism, Ash Tree Maiden symbolism going on. And The Tattered Prince, I have not thought about. No, that's going to tie into the whole Rag ragman stuff. Um, you know, uh, like the modeled, the fools, all the stuff I talked about in uh, Green Zombies kevin maker hit me up with another super chat so thanks buddy but yeah so you might not have worked through all of my stuff yet kevin uh when you get to Weirdwood goddess you'll find some really cool stuff about rohan weber that you'll enjoy let's see here yeah brand the builder i look forward to any and all write-ups that you do buddy let's see definitely Mo Kalen's kind of like a wall yeah and wouldn't you know who wouldn't you love to know who built Mo Kalen? Do, 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 do. Yeah, I'm not saying anything else about who built the wall. It's a pretty good clue, so I want to want to keep it under wraps. Uh, Tom Cruise from Patreon asks me, "Do you think the old evil green seers were skin-changing comets and moons?" Oh, okay. So I guess that was uh, sort of fit into what we talked about. But yeah, I mean, you can sort of see like it's one of the only feasible ways that you could think about magicians having any effect on comets and moons is the green seer magic can you skin change a comet? I don't know. This is why those stone faces that Ariane sees um, in the caves in the rainwood are so interesting. And in case you haven't read that, it's, um, you know, they're in this cave deep underground and all of a sudden they come up with carved faces that look like heart tree faces, but they're in these stone pillars and they're hundreds of feet underground. And so the question comes up like, are these just decorative? Do they just carve weirwood faces because it was like a sacred gathering space for them? Or can is it possible for greenseers to see out-of-stone faces? Because if they can see out of stone, then that gets us a lot closer to being able to skin-change or at least, like, steer or interact with a comet somehow. So Ravenous Reader says, Yes, you can skin-change a comet. All it takes is the Song of Stones. Yeah, I know you would mentioned that. As above, so below. Yes, we'll see. Matt Stoyles, patron of mine, sent in a super chat. Thank you, Matt Stoyles. Did you have a question attached with that or just spreading the love, it looks like? If you got a question, fire it up. Lady Char says, I might have said on another live stream who built the wall and it blew her mind. Well, don't say it. And the rest of you... You can pick through my videos and see if I said it. I don't. I don't remember, but I'm. I'm. Pro- I usually blab about stuff. I usually don't hold things back, so it's very possible that I did. of uh, the Wise points out that the harpy also works really well as an analog for the weirwood assassin, especially with those chains. You know, that's the whole prison vibe. So yeah, that's a good. That's a good observation. And obviously, the harpy is a dead ringer for the fire moon that becomes. You know. The meteors having those meteor talons, if you will. Uh, oh, so bloodware blogging. Who earlier asked about the others going under the wall? What is the importance of Gorin and his way? So the whole caverns thing uh, is really important because, you know, it's just a metaphor for the underworld and stuff. But in particular, the idea of a passage under the wall is there's several ideas like that there's the worm ways beneath the wall there's the black gate and then there's the uh gorn's way and i think that's all symbolic of uh weirwood net stuff essentially so i'm going to talk about that at some point why do i think the green seers are interested in sweet robin they seem to be speaking to him a lot in his dreams so yeah, um, I don't really know what to make of that. I, I know I know about those theories. Um, it could be that he's got a green seer gift that's just not realized. But I tend to look at Sweet Robin as being symbolic. Like obviously he's parallel to Bran in a lot of ways. So I think most of his stuff is really telling us about about that. But I don't know. I mean, I'd, that would be cool if like Sweet Robin does something crazy because like Bloodraven told him to at some point. I'll keep an eye out for that. Let's see. Are there specific days and times I do my live chats? Yes, I always do them on Saturday. And I usually do it at 3.30 Eastern. I had to move it back an hour today. But Saturday at 3.30, usually like a week after my podcast comes out. So just know anytime there's a new scripted podcast, there'll be a QA and a about a week later, and it'll be on a Saturday. Because I still watch a little bit of football. I used to be a big football guy. All the concussion stuff is sort of, you know, I'm a little less enthusiastic about it now. I don't play fantasy anymore, so I'm trying to, trying to wean myself off of that. But uh, my vikes, my Vikings, are in the Super Bowl this year, so don't you know? Got to watch them tomorrow. Go Vikings! But uh, all right. So any last questions? Uh, you know, I've got some housekeeping to do, so I have promoted the secrets. Not uh, what am I saying? Okay, so Secrets of the Citadel, check them out. If you liked Gemma's uh, voiceovers and you like cool theories. And then look for a new podcast on the Gray Area YouTube channel and Ideas of Ice and Fire YouTube channel coming out next week. School Vikings, oh yeah. And uh, let's see, what else was there? Some sort of announcement. Oh yeah, so if any of you guys are on Patreon, you may not know that Patreon, there is actually like a social media part of it. And if you log into Patreon, there's, um, you know, there's I, I leave posts there and people comment and we have a little discussion. There's also a messenger function inside of Patreon. And I'm surprised to find out that actually, like, a lot of people, uh, you know, didn't know about this. But, yeah, there's a whole message thing and a bulletin board. So if you signed up for Patreon, log in and check it out. And uh, there's actually, you know, we talk to each other and we do stuff. It's pretty cool. It's like a little behind-the-scenes community there. Johan's asking me, where's the podcast with poor Quentin? Well, I mean, I put out the live stream that I did with him. And, uh, oh, yeah, let's give them a shout-out. So poor Quentin and Beefish started the, a podcast called Not a Podcast, like the Not a Blog, George's blog. And uh, they're doing a weekly reread. And, of course, both of those guys are, like, psh, way deep on the literary themes and... Just really deep uh, psychological analysis of what the people are doing and what's going on from a writer's standpoint. Absolutely great stuff. So definitely check out uh, the Not a Podcast, and I will be on there sooner or later when they do some of the uh, you know more Lightbringer-centric chapters. I'll be uh, I'll be popping up sooner there, and I'll probably have those guys back on. I had a lot of fun with Poor Quentin last month, and everybody said that they liked it. So there you go all right guys i'm gonna go ahead and call call it for today oh, One more question did i try the game of thrones board game yet no i have not although i know aziz aziz does some sort of uh is it a video game not a board game but i guess he does the uh crusader kingdoms version of game of thrones online so if you're into gaming you can check that out but yeah thanks guys thanks for coming and uh yeah my cough will get better just to like I said, it's just, the voice is just worn out, man. Three days of hardcore podcasting. So the next episode is going to be about The Last Hero, and it's also going to be about the origins of House Stark, and it's going to talk more about the others, and Jon Snow, and it's going to have pretty big new archetype that I found having to do with The Last Hero. And so... I've only ever talked about Last Hero as like some sort of reincarnation or son of Azor High, but we're going to get way more specific and we're going to go to some cool places like the Wolf's Den in White Harbor. We're going to talk about, uh, let's see, Edric Dane and Edric Storm and uh, maybe even Gendry a little bit. So it's going to be some pretty cool stuff. And we'll talk about Baby Monster and a few other things. So thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in, and I will see you next time.